Dennis Stewart today, old favourites. Yes, Jane, we're going to look at some of the uh, remedies that I've spoken about frequently on the program, but we're going to look at them today largely as a result of listener demand and as a result of some of the feedback that some of my clients and patients have passed on to me about these old favourites. Health Naturally and Dennis Stewart, we're going to talk about old favourites, but there are so many favourites. Which favourites are, are we are. talking about? I guarantee listeners can uh, immediately almost um, visualise or, or think about what I'm going to talk about. The three I want to take up again are, of course, Slippery Elm. Uh, I want to talk about fibre and look at bran and particularly oat bran. And I would want to look at olive oil because I've said a little bit about olive oil on the program in the past, and many people think that it's just something that we uh, put on our food for flavouring, etc. But olive oil is a remarkable medicinal agent, and uh, I've, I'll give listeners this morning some very in- interesting feedback on previous discussions on olive oil from patients that have done remarkably well. So those three food substances, because that's essentially what they are, slippery on, oat bran, olive oil, food substances, but as the Greek philosopher said many, many, many years ago, food is your best medicine. So we'll talk about slippery elm first. Yes, what is it about slippery elm that makes it? Slippery elm, slippery elm. Look, uh, the other thing, Jane, just before I get into it, is that I have been doing a lot of uh, refreshing or refreshment reading. I'm to give a series of lectures, um, not this weekend, the following weekend, to practitioners of various persuasions, and uh, the, one of the seminars will be on the gastrointestinal tract. So I've done a lot of uh, refreshing reading on remedies that are used by herbalists and naturopaths, complementary therapists, that address conditions of the gastrointestinal tract. And of course, slippery elm emerges as one of the lead remedies. And whenever I think of slippery elm, or whenever I talk about slippery elm, I see it as being one of these remedies that, without which... Uh, we as complementary therapists would have would not be able to achieve some of the benefits that we do on the gastrointestinal tract. Slippery elm, for instance, is remarkable as a protective device for the gut wall and frequently is able to, to lessen some of the symptoms of heartburn, as we used to call it, uh, lessen the need to drift to some of the stronger pharmaceuticals that address reflux, for instance. Many, many people do well on slippery elm powder particularly, using it regularly where it sets up this protective membrane on the gut wall that lessens irritation of the gut wall by the gut contents. So it remar- it's remarkable in its working there. Secondarily, of course, it's magnificent in, in the lower bowel for addressing things like uh, diverticulitis uh, and various levels of colitis or even Crohn's disease where it can be used as a complementary medicine. And, of course, uh, one could talk about its role as a primary remedy for addressing what's commonly called irritable bowel syndrome. So it's a remedy that one immediately thinks about for, for all these conditions that are very, very popular, not always well-managed within the mainstream. Even if they are well-managed, Slippery Elm provides, if you like, an additional companion remedy as a soothing, healing remedy for most gut conditions uh, it's one of my favourites, and uh, uh, there wouldn't be too many of my patients with gastrointestinal problems 
that would not be on various preparations of slippery elm. And I say to listeners out there, uh, if you experience any of those things I've spoken about, uh, acidity, uh, low-level uh, reflux, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, there's nothing wrong with harnessing and purchasing a slippery elm powder. It's available in health food stores, pharmacies, I think even perhaps these days supermarkets. Uh, use it and you'll be astonished. And I say that without any qualms, you'll be astonished at the benefits that it has all the way through the gastrointestinal tract. Remarkable remedy. To NURFM's Health Naturally. And Dennis Stewart taking your calls. Lou's rung in from Maitland Vale. Lou, you've got a question about tinnitus. Yes. Good afternoon. Um, Towards the end of last year, you were talking to a gentleman about tinnitus. Yes. And you recommended four different products. Yes. What I'm wondering is what the therapeutic dose of these products would be. Okay. Look, the therapeutic dose would be dependent upon the the, the preparation because uh, various preparations, save the ginkgo, which would be one of the remedies that I spoke about, uh, various preparations may have varying levels of what we call the active um, in them. So one can only say that um, one would be guided by the dosage on the particular preparation uh, that you purchased. So your best bet there, if you're wanting to uh, uh, use it or uh, get the, the dosage factor, would be to preferably present say to your pharmacist uh, and get him to go through a range of uh, ginkgo products with you and look at the dosages on them. Um, it, it would be fair to say that if you're wanting to harness a ginkgo in a serious uh, medical way, one would be working towards the upper levels of dosage regardless of what preparation you're looking at. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I've been taking them for, what, nearly two months now. Okay. Well, and I believe I've reduced it. You, you have what? I've reduced the tinnitus. But that doesn't surprise me. Um, mm. um, uh, the, the thing with tinnitus, Lou, is that you would appreciate that it's, it's a stubborn condition. And I, all, I always say that if you're going to use any of the preparations that I mention, you must be prepared to give it a bit of a go. Well, you've been on it a couple of months and if, if you have noticed even a reduction in it, uh, that is, is good at, at, at this point. And I would say, and I would encourage you to pursue it uh, further because most of the literature that I read on ginkgo in relationship to tinnitus talks about it needing to be taken for a fairly extensive period of time to get an optimal benefit from it. So even though you may have got a benefit from it at this stage, and I'm pleased to hear that, it confirms our discussions on this program, uh, work with it uh, for a longer period of time, and I think you'll get a little bit more benefit from it. Yeah, well, I'm prepared to now that it's done something. Well, that's good. I'll I'll go for the rest of my life if I have to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing thing about it, Lou, is uh, this is one of the remedies that that, um, I had a lot to do with. Uh, listeners might be interested to know that uh, as far as I'm aware, I gave the first lectures on ginkgo biloba in Australia many, many years ago at a seminar that was particularly uh, arranged for me by Blackmores at Balgala, where the whole of the the Blackmore team uh, were present and heard me give a lecture on this herb, which at that stage was not circulating in Australia. 
but I, I had uh, done some research on it as a result of, of a German student that was studying with me that uh, herself was using uh, the ginkgo under a, under a German brand, and I'd never heard of it before. So um, dear Professor Elliot from this university, he took the, the German um, literature on it and gave it to the university, and they translated it uh, for us. Uh, Cliff was a very good friend of mine at that stage, and in fact, in his retirement from the university, came to study under me. We became almost father and son. So <laughs> I, I got into the ginkgo, and um, as far as I'm aware, we, I, I produced the first liquid extract of it uh, from leaves that were gathered from various trees along the North Shore. I won't say where. And then one company in Australia took it up and produced a tablet from it. So it was from those early starting uh, stages of it that the herb took off and now is a very popular preparation. Uh, again, however, uh, sometimes it won't work because in some preparations, perhaps in earlier days, it wasn't correctly dosed. The preparations today are well dosed, but my point is I take it not because I have uh, a tinnitus, uh, but uh, it is one of those remedies that's put forth uh, in the literature, particularly by uh, Rudolf Weiss, the great German a doctor and medical uh, medical practitioner as well as a herbalist, one of those remedies that's put forward as having remarkable, what I call colloquially, anti-aging characteristics. And I don't retreat from that. I believe that we can genuinely say that there are some natural substances, uh, such as ginkgo and, and ginseng, which have been shown to have uh, a chemistry that resists certain syndromes that begin to occur as we get older, things like memory and concentration. So sticking with it for your tinnitus might have other virtues as well, Lou. Oh, very good. <laughs> you might, <Yeah>. find, you <laughs> might fi find that listening to this program and getting onto tinnitus, you have added yep. years to your life. Oh, well. <laughs> we right. love a good, a good news story. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your call, Lou. Health Naturally on 2NURFM. Greg has rung in from Rutherford. Greg, um, you found an interesting, uh, well, I'm hoping it's uh, something that's helping you with your kidney problem. Yes, yes. Hello, Greg. Hello, Dennis. How are you? I'm very well. Tell us about your experience, uh, Greg. Uh, well, I have... Uh, one kidney, yes, and uh, it's uh, leaking protein. Yes. Now, um, I was uh, spoke to a lady who I might add is ninety five year yes. old. Yes. And she said, "Go to the garden and pick some fresh parsley. Yes. Boil it up. Yes. She said, Even with a bit of ginger. Yes. She said, and have a cup of tea a yeah. day. Yes. And she said that will help your kidney immensely, yes. and also. Um, as a diuretic too. Yes. And has it worked? Well, um, yes, I, I, I think so. Yes, okay. I just wanted to run it through you. Okay. Look, the only thing that I would say is if, if, your, if your kidney is, um, is, is dysfunctioning, anything you take um, should be uh, taken cautiously. Parsley is, is, is well known as a, as a gentle and mild diuretic. And in the past, it's been popularly used by, by, by men to address um, prostate problems, uh, particularly uh -huh. the urinary problems that go with it. 
Yes. Um, you'd need to be a little bit cautious of it, however, because it does contain some chemical constituents which, uh, if you were to overdose on them, might challenge the kidney. But in the level that you're taking them, or taking the, the, the preparation you're talking about, it would be most unlikely, in my opinion, to precipitate any problems. But I'll come in here and say this, that there is a herb which I would uh, consider uh, that you certainly um, study, look at, even discuss uh, with, your, with your doctor or your specialist. It's a, yeah. herb, it's a herb called Java kidney tea. Java, right. Java kidney tea. Um, yes. It's in, in Malaysia. It's known as kumis kuching, and right. um, yes. it. Uh, I would be probably one of the few um, herbalists in Australia that uh, Western herbalists that know much about it. And I have been using it for about five years, and I have uh, patients that would be prepared to come on this program and say that their kidney function tests, as yes. a result of taking this herb have plateaued out and that a couple of them in particular uh, looking down the barrel of dialysis, their kidney yes. function has stabilised and we can only put it down to this remarkable remedy that known all over Southeast Asia, by the way, as Java kidney tea. Uh, and when the Dutch were in, in, in uh, that part of the world when they owned um, Indonesia as colonialists, they actually were so impressed with uh, this herb, Java kidney tea, that they uh, called it up in their pharmacopoeia, in the, in the Dutch pharmacopoeia. So yes. there's, there's a lot of information about this fascinating remedy uh, taken as a tea to, yes. address, to address conditions, uh, even, for instance, things like uh, uh, some bleeding from, from the kidney yes. uh, can be usefully uh, addressed with this herb. Uh, protein um, loss could also be looked at as a possibility for it. Um, I would suggest that if this is a problem, and I presume your doctor's monitoring it for you, uh, that, that, yes, uh, that um, you, you discuss with... Most GPs that I find these days are increasingly interested in incredible uh, remedies that have a good reputation, particularly in other systems of medicine. And, and I know... Uh, two GPs particularly in the Hunter, and, and one, um, one specialist who works in, a, in another speciality that um, know a lot about this remedy and have no problems with their patient taking it and are happy to monitor the benefits that come from it. So in your case, if you can Google it, Java kidney tea, Java, it, sh yeah. it, it, it should come up with a lot of information. And if you are not doing well with this condition... Uh, yeah. I would suggest that you look a little bit beyond parsley, a useful diuretic, but I wouldn't give it too much more credit, and uh, look at the, this particular remedy that I've mentioned. All right. Well, thank you, Dennis, for that. And can I purchase this uh, at your offices? Well, or? look, before you do anything, Google your information, and if you're going to use it, you, you uh, discuss it w with your GP because it's one of these remedies that if it's going to do you any good, it should be able to be picked up in conventional uh, function tests. Oh, lovely, lovely. Mm. This is Health Naturally on 2NURFM. And, uh, Dennis, we, were, uh, we had a call a little bit earlier from Lewis of Nabiac mm -hmm. to say that he's been suffering psoriasis on his okay. arms and legs for ages, mm. years, in fact. His mother suggested pure lanolin. Mm success. And he's done well. Well, of course, lanolin is, is frequently incorporated into, into many 
creams and ointments as a topical application. It's a natural substance, if you like. I'm surprised that um, that the psoriasis has retreated entirely because, as far as I'm aware, lanolin is, is mainly used as a softening and a, as an agent to moisturise the skin, as an agent perhaps to remove uh, some of the scales or dryness that characterise psoriasis. So it's distinctly possible that by using it, the, the lesions have lost their angry appearance, the scaliness of them and the dryness of them that comes with psoriasis. Uh, listeners may not be aware of psoriasis, but I'm sure most people would have seen it. It's, it's a very common disease, unfortunately, a very difficult disease uh, to cure, even naturopathically or, or medically, and uh, there are various topical agents to use it. Um, it's an, a condition that manifests itself with scaliness, particularly on the elbows and the knees. Sometimes it can even get to the scalp, and it could indeed get all over the body. Uh, if this gentleman is doing well with, with lanolin, uh, that's, that's remarkable, uh, A, because it's very safe, and B, because uh, not too frequently would you see that result <clears throat> coming through with just lanolin. And I suspect, as I've said, Jane, that probably what it's doing is not addressing the underlying condition of psoriasis because psoriasis is what we call an autoimmune disease. But what it's doing is, is looking at doing something for the skin, uh, helping those patches lose their angry, scaly, dry appearance, uh, which is great because if you're getting that result with psoriasis uh, with uh, just uh, using lanolin, you're really in front of the ball. Well done. Excellent. Um, keep it up, I dare say. <laughs> so Slippery Elm we mm. talked about yeah, earlier yeah. and that's one, one of my favourites. The first of An iconic remedy. today's trio of favourites. Um, should we start talking about the next one? Yes, look, it was, it was interesting and um, I'm very enthusiastic about using natural substances wherever possible. And I had a lovely lady um, who's involved in, in, in ministry who came to see me with what I would call a moderately elevated level of cholesterol. Um, uh, now, I won't get into this topic because I'm very sceptical about the whole cholesterol debate. Uh, uh, I won't say much more about that, but this lady's cholesterol level was only very, very mildly elevated. I think the level that is acceptable in the mainstream these days and it seemingly keeps dropping down, uh, I think it's around about 5.2 to 5.5, but this lady's, I think, was about 6.7. And her good doctor nevertheless suggested well, wanted to prescribe what we refer to as a statin, and that is the the mainstream medical approach to uh, addressing cholesterol. Now, in my opinion, in my opinion, that's that's overkill. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Jane, I'm the best friend of the medical practitioners. But my view is a moderately elevated level of cholesterol, and particularly a, a level like that, should be given the opportunity to respond to, uh, how can I call it, uh, less, uh, lesser medications as far as possible side effects because regardless of what people say, statins do have side effects. There have been books written on them um, and I, my library is stacked with them and I won't go into that. But I said, this lady it was interesting in as much that she dissented 
from her um, GPs wanting to prescribe a statin for her and said that she would come and have a yarn with me and see what sort of things I would recommend. Well, one of the things I recommended was that she use a readily available product, a product called just oat bran. Now, there are various uh, brands of it. Uh, they all, uh, oat bran contains what's called beta-gluten and, uh, and beta-glucan, and it is a well-known agent for helping uh, to lower cholesterol. And people say, well, how does it do that? Uh, unlike a statin, which works through the liver and sometimes compromises the liver, what this substance does, if you like, and I'll be very colloquial and, and lay in my language here, language, what beta-gluten does in the system is bundle up, if you like, the cholesterol in the gastrointestinal tract and facilitate its expulsion from the system. Now, that's a good way of putting it. If you like, it almost functions as a magnet mm. uh, for uh, cholesterol as it moves through the system and assists the body in getting rid of levels of cholesterol, which progressively then see the cholesterol level drop down. So I said to this dear lady, look, uh, do the right thing by your GP and, and talk to her and tell her you've decided to go down this pathway, and I'm sure she'll agree with you, and get her to do a, another test on your cholesterol, say, in three, four, five months' time, which was completely taken on board. And the, the lady, by using a regular, and let me emphasise, if you're going to go down the pathway of using beta-glucan in, in note brand, you have to see it as a medicine. It's not something that it can be just taken here, there, once or twice a week. It needs to be taken as a medicinal substance in order to ensure this effect within the gut. And uh, she was she took it in the preparation that she purchased from her good pharmacist, and over that period of time it did the job. And her cholesterol level now is happily sitting within the expected range simply by using a substance like that and I would say, why why aren't some of these things being looked at before we immediately script these damn statins? <laughs> what I mean, um, don't talk to me about it. But I will go on record as saying, <laughs> down the track, the overemphasis on statins will come back to bite us on the behind. That's my view. Now, thinking about oat bran, yeah, is yeah. it more than just having a couple of tablespoons on your muesli in the morning? Look, it, it doesn't matter what form you take it in. The the forms that you can purchase, and, you've, and I'm not going to mention brand names, obviously, but the forms that you can purchase in, in, in packaged form from the pharmacist have little satchels in them. And those satchels have the measured dose. So what you're saying is okay, but the good thing about uh, using them in in this form is that in the package that you purchase, the little sachets of uh, of uh, beta gluten uh, are there, and you take one a day in whichever form you like to take it, and it's very very cheap and inexpensive. Albeit, if you don't want to go that pathway, what you've been talking about is quite quite adequate there is a minimum amount you can take more if you like but um it will work the same the convenience however of taking it in this already dosed form a sachet overcomes the messy problem perhaps of 
sprinkling it and doing all that goes with it. We're lazy people. Needing a steady hand, but at least you get what you need. So so it's a, a butte substance, and I can talk all day about other patients that have taken that on board, and I'm talking about moderately elevated levels of cholesterol. I'm not being offensive in any way uh, to GPs, but I would like to see something like that used a little bit more frequently before we reach for the script bed and the script for a statin. To NURFM's Health Naturally. Dennis Stewart, we've been talking about cholesterol mm. and mm. right on cue. Annette has rung in from Curry. You've got a comment about cholesterol or a question, Annette? I have a question, please. Hello, Annette. Hello, Dennis. Um, I don't have a thyroid, but uh-huh. I, my, when I had the problem with my thyroid, I had to have it totally removed. Yes. And when I did, um, I, my elevations of things, I had a, long, a lot of trouble getting it in line, yes. which my cholesterol did go up slightly. Yes. So I am only size three. Yes. So if, and my doctor did put me on a statin. Yes. So what my question is, will it have any effect if I try doing it the natural way? Does it have any without a thyroid? Does it make any difference? As far as, far as I'm aware, um, th- there should be no implications um, for your cholesterol level um, associated with your thyroidectomy. But again, um, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a GP even. You should uh, check that out. But... Yes. Uh, and, and again, I would say that if you are even interested in doing something other than being on a statin, you, you are obliged to discuss it with your GP because um, he's your medical manager. But if your cholesterol level was only moderately elevated, um, I'm sure that a decent discussion with your GP might uh, see a situation where you could try uh, something natural um, to see if it were able to hold the level of cholesterol that you're pre- previously uh, uh, working with. Um, again, I emphasise this is a natural way for addressing what's called moderately elevated levels of yeah. cholesterol. If you have a serious cardiovascular condition or if you, um, your cholesterol level was very, very high, my comments might have no bearing on that. But yeah. uh, if you are interested, um, I see no problems with your discussing it with your GP and getting him monitor the, monitoring the condition and you would be able to go to your pharmacy in, in, in Curry and they would uh, have the uh, preparations of beta-glucan that I've been speaking about uh, in various brands and be able to uh, uh, work out or give you the packages with the dosage relative to cholesterol lowering. Yeah, right, because I'm on 125 um, milligrams mm. of thyroxine a day. Yes, yes, yes. And, and I just thought, because I um, have, I am on that, would yes. it hurt still to try a little bit of that, even though I am on uh, that, which is a hard question for you to answer, I know. Look, it's difficult to answer that. And I think if you put it this way, if you were to occasionally use, uh, say, uh, something like oat bread, it's probably going to have no consequence either way. That's it would only be if you were to use it ongoingly as a medication yes. in in the stipulated uh, dosage form, that there might be some, there might be some um, additional lowering, but I'm not a specialist on that. I would yes. think it would be unwise for you to go down that self-initiated pathway, uh, enthusiastic as you obviously are, without first running it past your, your medical managers who know more about your overall case 
than what I do. Okay, then. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Annette. Thanks, Annette, for your call. Mm. Now, uh, we've had two of the trio Ah. of favourites, Dennis. So (laughs) what's your Very, Very, very quickly. Uh, Look, I'm a great fan of olive oil. Now, uh, immediately people will say, well, look, I use olive oil. I sprinkle a little bit on uh, salad now and then. But what we have to realise is that olive oil is a remarkable agent uh, medically or medicinally. And uh, if that is questioned, I would suggest that listeners Google olive oil and look at the therapeutic properties that this remedy has. But my enthusiasm for talking about it today was not just based on my preparing a series of lectures on the gastrointestinal tract where I want to mention the benefits of of olive oil, but a a client or a patient of mine came to see me only a week or so ago uh, about a number of matters and said that she heard us talk about olive oil some time ago on the program and began to use it. And she said, it's changed my life. I said, well, that's interesting. How is that? She said, well, at two levels. She said, to start with, uh, interestingly... She said, I'm no longer experiencing any um, acidity. I said, did you have reflux? She said, I had reflux. She said, admittedly, I was not on any medication. She said, but since I've been using olive oil in the dose of 30 mils daily, as you, Dennis, said on the radio, she's using it regularly. She said, my acid reflux has remarkably declined. Um, and I was a bit surprised. But then she said, uh, the other thing is that it has normalised my bowel functioning like nothing else. And when uh, when we spoke about olive oil in the past, we have referred to it as being a natural agent to promote a transit time, to normalise bowel function, and it does that primarily through working on the liver and gallbladder. But when I looked at the, uh, the olive oil in some of the literature that I have, sure enough, there it comes up as a remedy with remarkable soothing and and acid characteristics, which makes this lady's comment perfectly valid. So there's a lady that's used olive oil successfully, uh, and I hope it's Hunter Valley-produced olive oil. (laughs) I've got to give that a plug. But there's a lady that has used olive oil successfully to get a stomach much more comfortable and to make her much more regular. And as I've frequently, and I mentioned to her also, and frequently say to, to, to many people that, If we use olive oil in the amount that the Mediterraneans do, we would be remarkably less likely to get many of the common diseases that we Anglos frequently get, and they are diseases particularly associated with gallbladder dysfunction, congested gallbladder conditions, gallstones. Very rarely do you find uh, gallbladder problems in people that come from a culture where olive oil is taken vigorously. And I'm a great exponent of olive oil, living in the Hunter, obviously, as I'm a great exponent of good red wine. Those two things put together, listeners, guarantee a happy long life and a happy liver and a good gallbladder. Ah, there you go. (laughs) So 30 mils is about a dessert spoonful, tablespoonful? And look, it it wouldn't matter if it was a bit more than that, but in Potter's Cyclopedia of Botanical Drugs and Preparations, the range is 15 to 60 mils, so 30 mils is halfway. A nice average. It's good, it's good. Now, uh, in our last couple of minutes, yeah. Dennis, uh, bees. Yeah, look, it is I just, such a good just thing. wanted to say something quickly. Weeks ago, 
I spoke about the dilemma associated with the bee industry, the decimation uh, of beehives, uh, and the way in which the industry here is likely to suffer greatly as a result of the, um, of the, uh, of the fires. And I also spoke about the need uh, for us all uh, to think more seriously about uh, establishing uh, beehives at, all around the place uh, and to people to start to join uh, clubs in their local areas that promote beekeeping. But I also said that beekeeping should be seen as diversionary therapy um, for particularly people, elderly people uh, who are in a compromised situation, who may be in the early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia, because I referred to a Russian text where many years ago it was put forward um, by the two Russians in the book that I was referring to as an objective that the Soviet government at that time was embarking on, and that is to use beekeeping as therapy for particularly elderly people whose health was compromised. And in a local magazine that I get regularly from the UK, there was an example of where that is actually being done, where a, a, a soldier who was... Uh, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, um, discharged from the army, given a grant, got into beekeeping and changed his life. What a good thing changed to do. So a lifestyle change yeah, changed as well. Changed his life. And I, I'm a great encourager now of this idea of getting people to see, particularly elderly people and people who were starting to lose it a little bit at multiple levels, possibly myself, <laughs> to, to get a beehive. Get a beehive, watch the bees become fascinated in it, and most beekeepers live a little bit longer uh, than what the ordinary person does, albeit there's a penalty for that along the way. You get bitten occasionally, but there's perhaps a scientific explanation as to how good that does you. Yes, (laughs) as long as you're not one of those people. (laughs) But, yes, all good. Well, that's uh, Health Naturally for today. Thank you, Dennis Stewart. Good program, Look forward to Health Naturally again next week after the midday news on 2NURFM. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.